All right, good evening. Going to uh, continue in Zechariah, Zechariah chapter 1. We'll look at his uh, second of eight visions. Just a couple verses today. Zechariah chapter 1, verses 18 through 21. A few verses. Um, before we do, prayer, prayer needs, prayer concerns, any... Anything going? All right, Zechariah chapter 1, verse 18. We read the prophet. He says, Then I raised my eyes and looked, and there were four horns. And I said to the angel who talked to me, What are these? So he answered me, These are the horns that have scattered Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. Then the Lord showed me four craftsmen. And I said, What are these uh, coming to do? So he said, these are the horns that scattered Judah so that no one could lift up his head. But the craftsmen are coming to terrify them to cast out the horns of the nations that lifted up their horn against the land of Judah to scatter it. And so you remember the setting. Israel is back in the land after 70 years of exile. They're, they're back in the land, but prosperity has not yet returned to them. They're not enjoying the same... Uh, the same prosperity that they enjoyed before the exile, uh, their wealth had not been restored. The status of their city had not yet been renewed. Uh, the city had not been rebuilt. The walls had not been rebuilt. They had begun work on the temple, but even that was discouraging to them because the temple that they were building was nothing like the one that had been built during the reign of Solomon. They didn't have the resources and the wealth, and, and it, it was just a a humble temple. It looked like nothing in their eyes, the prophet said, compared to the other one. And so even in rebuilding the temple, they had become discouraged. Um, there was not a son of David on the throne. They were submitted to a pagan king, King Darius of uh, Persia. And so even though they were back in the land, their, their former glory, prosperity, satisfaction, comfort had not yet been restored. But God speaks through Zechariah to bring comforting words. Uh, and uh, we saw in last, the last vision uh, a couple weeks ago, we, we saw that the nations were at rest. Uh, the nations of the earth were kind of settled. It was a time of peace. And uh, a lot of the wars that had been fought against the Assyrians and the Babylonians, when the, the Persians conquered Babylonia, everything kind of settled down. And people were at rest, people were at ease, people were content and complacent, and yet God's people were not yet at rest. They were not settled. They were not at ease. Their city didn't have walls. They were being harassed by their neighbors. Uh, they were just not experiencing uh, a, a time of comfort and prosperity, and yet God then calls Zechariah to speak comforting and encouraging words to them. And uh, during this first part of Zechariah, many of those words come in the form of visions. And uh, Zechariah chapter 1, verse 7 through chapter 6, verse 8, are a series of eight visions that Zechariah has that are interpreted, that are, that are spoken and then interpreted to the people. And remember last time we talked about a vision. A vision is when God allows... 
the prophet to see a spiritual reality, to see something in the spiritual realm that's normally invisible to the human eye, that's outside of human perception. So God enables him to see a spiritual reality that he can't see with his physical eyes. And uh, in the first vision, uh, God had said that he was very angry with the nations that had been used as instruments of his anger against Judah. Uh, and in that vision, he promised the restoration of Jerusalem. And in this second vision, he promises that Israel will rise to terrify and cast out the nations that had scattered them. Uh, and so in this, in this vision, the first thing we see uh, in verse 18, I raised my eyes and looked, and there were four horns. Now, we're going to have a little class on biblical interpretation tonight. Um, uh, and so if you, you think of the word horns, and how is that word used in the Scripture? You know, if you were to tell, say, horn to Samuel, first thing he would think of is a, is a tuba. Yeah, <laughs> you know, a horn, a, a musical instrument. Oh, oh, Samuel, no, Samuel, your grandson. <laughs> you know, he would think of a of a of an instrument, a musical instrument, and so certainly the word horn is used as a musical instrument. The, the 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 trumpets that would be blown at the feast of trumpets and on the Sabbath day and at the time of jubilee, and actually, probably the 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 origin of that term was that their their trumpets were made out of ram's horns. And so it was a part of an animal. They would take the, the horn off the ram. They would haul it out and make a trumpet, and it called a shofar, a, a ram's horn. And so uh, maybe that's where we get the term horn, too. I don't know. Uh, but that, that was the origin of the trumpet. So, so it could be referring to a musical instrument. Or the, the, the word horn in Scripture is also used as a container. Again, they would take the instrument, the, the part of the animal, the horn off the animal, hollow it out, and they would be able to uh, hollow it out and then fill it with oil or with uh, some other substance. You know, in the, uh, here you, you've heard of a powder horn, uh, a horn that would be taken, be hollowed out, and filled with gunpowder. To be used in the in the musket, and so uh, and so it could be used, it could be referring to a container, uh, an animal's horn hollowed out, filled with oil or some other substance, or the horn was also a part of the altar. There are actually two altars in the uh, tabernacle and later the temple that were said to have horns: the altar of incense and the altar of burnt offering. And so, uh, so evidently there was a, a coming out, protruding from the top of the altar on the four corners would be a horn similar to the horn of, of an animal. And uh, uh, scholars speculate maybe, you know, when they were slaughtering the meat, they would impale the meat onto the horn to, as a convenient way to hold it while they were pr processing the, the, uh, the sacrifice, at least on the burnt offering, that wouldn't be necessary on the incense, altar of incense. So, the, so a horn is also a part of the altar. And then uh, most obviously, and I guess all of these kind of uh, uh, go to, the, to probably the most common use, is it was a part of an animal. And, and, and uh, what would an animal most usually use his horn for? For defense or even... Offense, you know, for as a weapon uh, against other animals, you know, and and, uh, and and the males usually have horns. The females don't have horns, and when two males are around a female, 
they go at it. And their horns are effective weapons. And so as a result of that, the word horn can also be used metaphorically and stand for military or political power. Uh, you know, the visions of Daniel and then the visions in Revelation of the beast with horns representing political authorities or kings, kingdoms, military and political powers. And so looking at the context of this passage, so if that's the way the word horn is used, and does anybody think of anybody think of any others? Those are the ones I came up with. Anybody know of any other ways that word horn might be used in the scripture? Those were the four that I like the Horn of Africa. Yeah, I don't. I don't know that it's used in. The, I know we use that term, the Horn of Africa, as the terrain feature. I don't know if it's in the scripture. It might be, but uh, if you look at the context and you look at those definitions, including the metaphorical use, what what image do you think is portrayed in the horns that Zachariah sees? Which one of these definitions do you think is being used in this vision, or this vision is to bring to the prophet in the people's mind? Okay, military and political power. That's, that's kind of what I think that the uh, image is. Now again, uh, like, we talked about, like we talked about last week, when we're studying Zechariah, we're very fortunate because not only did Zechariah see visions, but Zechariah had an angel who talked with him. <laughs> and the angel that talked with Zechariah tells him what the images mean, or at least, you know, the, the, the most significant thing. So in Zechariah, we don't have to, it's not a puzzle that we have to, to solve, and it's not a mystery. You know, we read the vision, and then we, we, we keep reading, and the angel who talked with him tells him what it means. And so we're very fortunate. We don't have to do a lot of speculation, even though I kind of speculated. <laughs> but, uh, um, <laughs> but he doesn't specifically say. But, but, but it does seem like that here he is talking about uh, political and military powers, kingdoms that have scattered Judah, the horns that have scattered Judah. So he appears to be using it as a... As a weapon that was used against Judah and caused it to be scorned, like a, an animal with horns running in and scattering uh, uh, lesser animals from his place, for, from the place where he would like to grace. And so this big animal with horns comes and runs off the defenseless sheep, perhaps, is, is the image. So yeah, I think, I think here he's probably using that metaphorically to talk of political or military powers. And, uh, and that's also true to the context, because in the previous vision, you know, he specifically speaks of the nations, the nations at ease, and the ones who had driven out, uh, driven out Israel, that Lord is angry with them. I'm angry with the nations, and so probably here he's talking about militarily and politically powerful nations is what we would what we would think so the uh, so so that part is kind of clear by the context the lord of hosts said that he was exceedingly angry at the nations at ease he's angry with the nations that he had used uh he he used their military and political power against judah israel and jerusalem and now he is angry with them and he's going to turn his anger onto them so that part's clear 
Now, how many horns are there? Four. All right, so how would we understand four horns? Um, a couple ways that we might understand them. We could look completely in the past, and we could say, well, you know, the, the enemies of Israel, Judah, and Jerusalem, or maybe like Egypt, the Philistines, the Assyrians, and the Babylonians. You know, normally when we think of, when I think of the nations that scattered Israel and Judah and Jerusalem, I think of two. I think of Assyria and Babylon. You know, the Assyrians scattering the ten northern tribes, Babylon conquering the southern tribes, taking them into exile. And so, when I, I think of nations scattering Jerusalem, I think of two, or Israel. But he sees four. And so maybe he's going all the way back to Egypt, and then the Philistines, or you could even take any of those enemies during the time of the judges, the Moabites, the Ammonites, or the uh, Philistines. You know, they fought a lot of people there in the judges, but I guess the Philistines are probably the, the most uh, common enemy and the enemy that oppressed them during the time of Saul. Uh, prior to David, and then the Babylonians and the Syrians. So you could just look totally historically and find four powers that uh, abused Israel, God's people, or you could have a mixture of past and future. So you could interpret this to be the Assyrians who scattered the northern tribes, the Babylonians who took the southern tribes into exile, destroyed Jerusalem, and then you could also look into the future and see the Greeks who oppressed Israel during the uh, intertestamental period, the time between Malachi and Matthew, when the, when the Greeks conquered that area and ruled over and oppressed, uh, oppressed Israel. And then who would follow the Greeks? the Romans, who ultimately destroyed Jerusalem in about A.D. 70, again, tearing down the temple and scattering the Jewish people uh, until 1947. <laughs> so from A.D. 70 to 1947, uh, the, the Jewish people did not live there in the land. And so you could interpret it that way. Part of the past and looking into the future... Or you could also interpret this metaphorically. You know, you could be saying four horns, and the number four can sometimes speak to you know, uh, you talk about the four corners of the earth, the four winds, and so it could just be showing complete. You know, all the military and political powers in the world. <laughs> and, uh, and, and that's kind of the way I, I... And really where you land on this is not important to the interpretation of the, uh, to the vision because if it was, the angel who talked to Zechariah would have told him <laughs> it was. But so, so I, I kind of think that he's just talking about the, the four corners, the four winds, all the military and political powers of the earth. Uh, God is going to... Uh, uh, God, God rules over them. You know, Jesus is the king of kings, the king of kingdoms. And so all the kingdoms of the earth ultimately bow their knee, their knee to the king of kings, bow their knee to Jesus. And, uh, and so, I, 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 again, you can choose any of those three interpretations. I kind of think he's just talking 
uh, you know, about the four corners, the four winds, the four ends of the earth, uh, all of the all of the kingdoms of the earth are ultimately under his authority. God raises up kings. He raises up nations. He determines their boundaries. He determines their rise. He determines their fall. He determines their rulers and their rulers, even though they did not recognize him, are his ministers in Romans 13, deacons, servants of God, to do his work and to do his will. And even though they don't acknowledge him, they don't know him, they're not seeking to follow him, God raises them up. They accomplish his purpose he brings them down. Uh, he is the King of Kings. So I think uh, I think here he's talking about you know the four directions uh, rep- representing completeness, and and this is also consistent with uh, with verse chapter two verse six. Up, up, flee from the land of the north, says the Lord, for I've spread you abroad like the four winds of heaven. And so uh, that context kind of leads to. Maybe this is the right understanding of the number four. He's not speaking of four specific kingdoms, but he's speaking of all the kingdoms of the earth. He's, he's speaking com, of completeness. And so that's, that's kind of what I think, especially with chapter 2, verse 6. So refer to every world power, every empire, every nation, every principality, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Egyptians, the Moabites, the Ammonites, the Philistines, the Edomites, all the surrounding nations. Uh, uh, that beginning prior to the Exodus, while they were in Egypt, when they came into the land, and then the, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Edomites, the Philistines that oppressed them in the land, the Greeks, the Romans, and all everything, all the kingdoms of the earth, I believe is really is really what uh, Zechariah is referencing here. But again, not really that necessary to the interpretation of the meaning of the vision, and so. Uh, uh, nations that that were used to that worked to weaken and scatter God's people uh, that culminated in the exile of both the northern and southern kingdoms of Israel and Judah. And scattering is an agricultural image uh, describing what happens on the threshing floor. You know, you, they go and they get the, the 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 wheat, they put it on the threshing floor, and they separate. They use threshing sleds and oxen to separate the good from the bad, uh, the wheat from the chaff, and, uh, uh, and the grain husk are blown away, scattered in the threshing floor. And in that same way, Israel and Judah were scattered. They were blown away. Uh, uh, they were driven out of the land. And as we've gone through the Old Testament, we've talked about the fact that this is a covenant curse. God told them uh, when He was bringing them into the land in, in Leviticus Chapter 26, God said He would scatter them among the nations and draw out a sword after you. Your land shall be desolate and your cities laid waste if you do not obey the covenant. If you do not show your faith in me by being obedient to me, I will scatter you among the nations. Uh, I will drive you out with the sword and your land will be desolate. And so God used the enemy nations as instruments of His judgment. All right, so Zechariah saw four horns, probably representing military and political power that had been used to oppress and to, to scatter, to discipline God's people. So the first thing he sees is four horns. What does he see second? What else does he see in this vision? 
or craftsman. All right, what's a craftsman? That's right. Somebody, who, somebody who makes things. Somebody who works with their hands. And uh, and so he sees four craftsmen. The Lord showed me four craftsmen. Uh, and, and and again, you notice that you know a reminder that this vision is coming from the Lord. Um, the Lord showed me four craftsmen. Zechariah is, is recording for us uh, words that God had spoken to him and, and what God had allowed him to see in the spiritual realm. He sees four craftsmen. And craftsmen is a word that is used most often in the Scripture to describe the skilled workers that are involved in the construction of the tabernacle and later the temple. And so what's happening in Zechariah's day? They're building the temple. All right, so craftsmen were involved in the building of the temple, and so Zechariah sees the exact number of craftsmen that there were horns. And so he sees four craftsmen. And what are the craftsmen coming to do? Yes. And so the, uh, the, the angel who spoke with him said, these are the horns that scattered Judah so that no one could lift up his head. But the craftsmen are coming to terrify them to cast out the horns of the nations that lifted up their horn against the land of Judah to scatter it. And so the craftsmen are coming to terrify and cast out the horns. The craftsmen will do to the horns what the horns did to God's people. The horns came and scattered God's people, drove them out of the land, and now the craftsmen are going to come to the horns and terrify them and cast them out. And so uh, Zechariah seems to be saying the people who are rebuilding the temple will bring about the reversal that God has promised. In the first vision, God promised a reversal. I'm angry at the nations, and I will restore my people. And so that restoration is going to be brought about through the instrument of these craftsmen. And so Zechariah's second vision is a message of comfort and encouragement. Haggai had been used by God to stir up the hearts of the people to begin the work. And, and they became discouraged because of opposition. They became discouraged because of the, uh, the humbleness, uh, the, the, what they were building looked like nothing compared to the former one. They, they became discouraged, and so God raises up Haggai to uh, motivate them to begin the building, to begin the work, and now He calls Zechariah to continue them to, to encourage them to continue. Keep going. Keep building. Just keep the, the, you know, overcome the opposition, overcome your discouragement, and keep doing the work because it is by this, this work, the rebuilding of the temple, the rebuilding of the city, the rebuilding of its walls, by this, the foreign nations that have been responsible for scattering the northern and southern kingdoms will have their power removed and they will no longer oppress God's people. The rebuilding of the temple will result in the restoration of God's people and His return to them in blessing and in His presence. And so Zechariah pro proclaims the importance of continuing the work, rebuild the temple, 
And this is also a reminder of God's sovereignty over the nations. He used these nations for His purpose. And that does not excuse them for their sinfulness. He will now use His people uh, as His instrument of wrath against them. And so, if you... If you were thinking about trying to take on a world superpower, would you rather have a horn, military political power, or a craftsman? <laughs> yeah, if you were planning to go take on the Persians and defeat them, do you think you'd want soldiers or carpenters? <laughs> Most of us would probably choose soldiers, military, political power. But the Scripture tells us in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 27, God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty, the base things of the world, and the things which are despised. God has chosen and the things which are not, to bring to nothing the things that are. And so I think, you know, Zechariah is telling us that God uses unexpected things to accomplish His work. Things that we would never think to use, or things that are weak to overcome the things that are mighty. Things that are foolish to overcome the things that are wise. Things that are not to overcome the things that are. And so God has chosen the weak things of the world. Uh, and that should be a great encouragement to us. God works powerfully in and through His people even when they are small and weak. In fact, not even when they're small and group, but mostly when they're small and weak. <laughs> when God works, He generally chooses to use the small, the weak, the unexpected. Well, you can do a, a whole Bible study going through... Uh, going through the Scripture and looking at the weak, insignificant instruments that God chose to use. Yeah, exactly, like Gideon's army. That's right, you know. Just a rod in the hand of Moses and the, and the whole court of Pharaoh. Uh, Elijah, after three years of drought, sees a cloud come up out of the sea the size of a man's hand. Gideon's army, that's too big. You know, you've got to send some of them home. And... and uh, uh, Samson draw, grabbing the jawbone of a donkey and slaying a thousand Philistines. And so God uses weak instruments. God uses things that if we were planning a battle, we would never choose to use. We're not going to use torches and trumpets. <laughs> yep, yep. Just walking around in circles. <laughs> and... Uh, I've been in a couple of military units that walked around in circles. But, um, <laughs> and because I was the lieutenant that was leading them, that's why we were walking around in circles. <laughs> but, uh, so, yeah, anyway. So God uses weak and confused, I mean weak and, and, and small instruments to do His work. And, and Paul tells us why God chooses to do that. Why does God use the, the foolish things and the weak things and the things that are despised and the things that are not? First uh, Corinthians one twenty nine that no flesh should glory in His presence. 
And so when God uses a weak instrument, then everybody just looks and says, wow, God did that. It had to be, because uh, it surely wasn't these 300 people with torches and horns and pots. Uh, God did a great work. So when God does a great work with a, a, great, a weak instrument, He is glorified. When He overcomes the mighty with the weak, His strength and power is revealed. When God uses the foolish things to confound the wise, God's omniscience is revealed. When God uses uh, uh, the things that are not to bring to nothing the things that are, His majesty and His might is put on display. It pleases God to use weak and foolish instruments insignificant tools to accomplish His work in a way that brings Him all the glory. And so this was a word of encouragement to the, to the, to the builders of the temple. God's going to use your work to bring reversal, to cast out the horns and to restore the glory of My people. And so this should be a, a word of comfort and encouragement it was comfort and encouragement to them. It should be a word of comfort and encouragement to us. That God is pleased to use weak, foolish, insignificant things to do great and mighty works. Therefore, to God be all the glory. No flesh can glory in His presence. And I think uh, uh, another significant application, you know, it was through a craftsman a carpenter, that God purposed to bring salvation to all who believe. A Galilean carpenter, a carpenter from Nazareth, uh, a carpenter from town. You remember Nathaniel? Nathaniel was a man that Jesus himself called an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. And what did Nathaniel think of Nazareth? Nothing good can come from there. You know, uh, Andrew comes running to, or Philip comes running to Nathaniel and said, we found the Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth. And Nathaniel says, can anything good come from Nazareth? And Jesus says, well, that, that guy, he has no deceit. <laughs> so, uh, so, you know, so a, a, a Galilean carpenter from an insignificant village, disrespected town, Through that craftsman, from that insignificant place, God brought the Savior of the world. That Galilean carpenter bore the sin of every single person who had ever come to him in repentance and faith. That Galilean carpenter from that little hick town confounded the wise religious leaders of his day, the religious leaders in Jerusalem. Even when he was 12 years old, he confounded the religious leaders of the day. And then when he was 33 years old, boy howdy, in the last week of his life, he confounded those religious leaders and those teachers. God used that Galilean carpenter from that little hick town to confound the mighty Roman governor. Pilate, confounded by the wisdom and majesty of Jesus. And God used that little insignificant Galilean carpenter from that little insignificant hick town. Uh, and the way he endured a felon's death 
caused the mighty warrior, the Roman centurion, to say, truly, this was the Son of God. So this Galilean carpenter fulfilled the law. He bore the sin of every single person from every tribe, every tongue, every nation, every people. Every, he bore the sins of every single one who would ever come to him in repentance and faith. And that Galilean carpenter from Nazareth endured and turned away God's wrath as he died on the cross. And God raised that Galilean carpenter from the dead to show that his sacrifice was accepted. And God has given him a name that is above every name. And that Galilean carpenter is the king of kings. He rules over every authority. Every authority that there is, is his minister to do and accomplish his will. Every governing authority will answer to him for the way they exercise the authority that was delegated to them, that was entrusted to them by the King of Kings. And so, uh, God chooses the craftsman to overcome all the military and political might of the earth. And now the call goes out to people everywhere to repent, to turn from sin, and turn to Jesus, a craftsman, a carpenter, to be born again to new life, everlasting life with God. And so God gives Zechariah a vision that is a word of comfort and encouragement to the ones rebuilding the temple. Through their work, as insignificant as it seems to them, it looks like nothing to them compared to the former glory. God is going to use their work, their efforts, to bring about the reversal, to bring about the judgment of the nations and the restoration of His people. And that same word of comfort goes out to us. God is still working through His people to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. Questions about vision number two. the horns, and the craftsmen. And the angel who said to me, I said, what are these? These are the horns that have scattered Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. And the Lord showed me four craftsmen. And I said, what are these coming to do? These are the horns that scattered Judah so that no one could lift up his head, but the craftsmen are coming to terrify them, to cast out the horns of the nations that lifted up their horn against the land of Judah to scatter it. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord God, we're so thankful for your grace and, and, and for your might. Lord, we, we give you praise because you are able, and not, not only able, but take pleasure in using little bitty insignificant things to do great and infinite works so that you might be praised. And God, we, we recognize that, that we're small, we're weak, we're foolish, we're insignificant from an insignificant place. And Lord, that gives us hope because that's just the kind of people that you are pleased to use. And so we ask that you would show us your glory, that you would be pleased to, uh, uh, to work in and through us to do a mighty work and to, uh, uh, to display your glory. And God, when it happens, help us to be careful not to glory in your presence, but to give you all the glory and praise. And Lord, we thank you mostly for Jesus, that Galilean carpenter who fulfilled the law, who satisfied your wrath, and who gives life to all who believe. And we pray that you would find us believing and find us faithful to take that message uh, 
to our our world, our part of it, and then through our gifts and prayers to the end of the world. And it is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. Thank you.